Welcome, listeners. This is episode seven of the Fancy Lab Coat Guild. I'm Guy, and Ali isn't here for this recording as he's currently in Kuwait and defending his PhD. But we have the co-founder of SciFind as our co-host today. Hey guys, what's up?、Um, I'm Stephanie Robnett. I am Guy's co-founder, and thanks for having me, Guy. I'm sad I'm not here with Ali, but I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Today, our、uh, special guest is Esther Kim. But before we get started, I want to mention that this episode is sponsored by SciFind, the scientific collaboration network. SciFind is a platform where scientists can share information beyond the publication. Scientists come to SciFind to troubleshoot their work with the community and share things like methods, optimizations, and tips to get things to work in your lab. Scientists that join SciFind can connect with their peers to help solve their experimental problems and grow their reputation in more ways than just papers. Esther Kim is a scientist working in synthetic biology, but she isn't just a scientist. She's a premier community builder in these burgeoning scientific spaces. She's worked at small startups in the Bay Area at the Odin, SynBioBeta, Braid Theory, and spent her early years working as a genetic engineer in biomanufacturing. She is most known for her work championing independent scientific researchers in the biohacking community to disrupt and transform scientific research and communication. She believes that science should be accessible and affordable to all. Introducing Esther Kim of the House of Odin, first of her name. The biohacker, queen of biohack the planet, purifier of DNA, breaker of double-stranded chains, and mother of Hyla Cenaria. Let's give a warm welcome to Esther. Howdy, Esther. Welcome to LA. Howdy. It's great <laughs> to be in LA with well, fabulous people. Why is that the most badass intro I've ever heard on a podcast? I'm so. Where did you even dig that up? Because I wrote that so long ago. I'm I'm a sleuth, <laughs> and I liked it. So I was like, I I, I like the um you know fantasy. Well, do you, do you know what Hyla Scenaria is? No. I'm surprised I pronounced it right, but yeah, you did. A what great is、job. it? <laughs> They're、uh, tree frogs. Oh, cute. <laughs> yeah. So when I was working at the Odin, I was a mother of all tree frogs. I took care. I was like. The animal husbandry person on the team,、um, and I took care of about eighty plus tree frogs all at once, and it was really cute. I even raised food for them, so I even learned how to、um, hatch crickets from eggs and feed tree frogs and grow them. It was pretty cool.、Was、like it, Freya, <laughs> like Freya. Was it one、um, species of tree frog, or was it? Multiple, like、um, I think at one point I was handling three species of frogs, not necessarily tree frogs, but、um, yeah, it was a ton of frogs. <laughs> They were very cute. <laughs> I actually have a tattoo of a tree frog on my back, so that's awesome. I feel called. Yeah, can you、connected. show it to me after? I will.、Awesome. Yeah, after. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, you'll get to see it.、Um, so you know, we're gonna hear from the source, you guys. And、um, so you've been working in this super evolving field、uh, for years now, and growing communities of scientists, whether amateur or academic. How would you define your work, and what are some of the organizations you've worked closely with over time? So my work is always evolving. I can't really define my work because I've worked in so many different verticals,、um, cross sector industries, to where. This is how we kind of synthesize it. 
the people that I meet really greatly influence the direction of my work. So I go where the people need me and where, and I go where I provide the most impact. Um, and the most considerable amount of work that I've done is with the Odin. And what is the Odin? So the Odin is a educational website that provides um, educational kits. And their big flagship product is a genetic engineer CRISPR kit. It's how to do your own DIY, your own CRISPR. So you can order a kit online, get it shipped to your house, and you can learn genetic engineering on your kitchen or in your garage. Damn, that is super cool. <laughs> Thanks. Are they expensive? I mean, I remember CRISPR enzymes being oof. A lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's actually quite affordable. Um, the entire ethos of the Odin is really trying to give access and accessibility to anybody that wants to learn this type of, you know, scientific research, because a lot of scientific research nowadays is behind closed doors or in academia or corporations. But you have to realize the price of doing genetic engineering is dropping so low that people can order oligos or DNA to your house mm -hmm. and you can assemble them and modify and and engineer organisms as you know of, of today. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool because, right, if you think back to way back, you know, scientists like Mendel or something like, you know, he's just a guy working with peas in his like, what Pea was farm. it? Pea farm. Well, chapel. <laughs> he's chapel. Like a, he was like a, a monk of some sort, yeah. priest. Um, and it's kind of interesting that now we see this thing coming back, this type of scientific ethos of like, well, I want to look at peas. I, I don't need permission to look at peas. Exactly, <laughs> you know? yeah. You know? He would be like the first biohacker or citizen scientist that I know of that's yeah. been documented. So yeah, kudos to Mendel. Um, and where did this fascination uh, with science come from and kind of, yeah, what's the origin of it? What were your first forays into it? Man, um, I love science my entire life. And I remember just growing up as a little kid, I would spend, I was probably, and we were probably the last generations to spend it outside mm -hmm. before we found out that the internet can show us how many pedophiles are in <laughs> our neighborhood, uh, which clearly, so created this, <laughs> clearly created this fear of uh, bringing your children inside. But, you know, in the olden days, my, my parents would let me go outside, touch grass, play with animals. I was a creek girl. There was a creek behind my house. So I would always be out at the creek just catching things and bringing them home um, unsolicited. Did um, you grow up in California? I did. I, I grew up in California. I was born, I was, I'm actually first, first born Jen in the United States. Mm. And also, um, yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I was first born Jen. Um, and my parents immigrated from Korea and mm -hmm. they were war children. Mm -hmm. They grew up post-war, and so they really had nothing. And they came all the way to California, where I grew up. So my dad is actually a serial entrepreneur. He spent a lot of his time uh, doing network engineering. Mm -hmm. um, so he basically built the internet, which was insane, in Silicon Valley in the 80s and the 90s. So wow. I get a lot of inspiration from my dad because he has this incredible entrepreneurial drive to push the needle on a lot of 
emerging technologies. And I take a page from that book. So I grew up with nature, surrounded by nature, touching and feeling nature. And now I'm at this precipice where I can manipulate nature, <laughs> which is incredibly exciting. Did you ever do any like, uh, if you recall, any like, quote unquote, experiments as a child? I'm not going to say that on this podcast. <laughs> what were your experiments? <laughs> um, I know what I did. I went to, there was a forest near my house and it had these little like mushrooms that exploded when you stepped on them. Ooh. So I would like collect those and other Jeez. plants and grind them up. I wouldn't drink it. I'm not that foolish. But, <laughs> um, I like these exploding mushrooms. I probably inhaled way more spores than I should have, but clearly nothing happened that I know of. Yeah, um, I, I don't have any experiments that I did, um, but I was just generally curious about the mechanisms of how things work in mm -hmm. nature. Um, so fast forward to the genetic engineering work that I do today, I think, and I'll tell you a very empowering story because I remember as an undergraduate, I was in a lecture class, a huge lecture class at uh, university here. And the professor goes over CRISPR for 15 minutes. And after, after the lecture ends, I run down and I say, hey, professor, prof prof professor Baysdorfer, what is CRISPR? And, you know, can you tell me more about this? This is super exciting. And he said, I don't know. It's right now emerging. And this was in 2015. So it was kind of oh. in the early stages of CRISPR engineering. And he said, you know, it's for you to find out. And for me to hear about your experiments in the future. And I said, okay, that's awesome. So I went out and I graduated from university with a bachelor's degree. And then immediately I got my dream job in biomanufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that's where it kind of spiraled out. And I started working at a small start startup uh, engineering microorganisms to produce alternative chemicals. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, it took what used to take about two months to engineer a strain in bacteria or yeast can now be done in a matter of two weeks. And so I did that on the lab bench and I gave it to my fermentation scientists, my downstream processing and then within two months of give me literally engineering that strain to holding a powder inside of my hand, which was our first product mm. that was never naturally made before, was so empowering. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, you can literally make anything out of nothing. Out of, well, nothing <laughs> as of sugar, sugar. water and, <laughs> and yeast, right? And so... I was like, this is the promise of genetic engineering in the future, where we can literally make everything from microbes. I mean, that is, it, it is super cool. Like you get to use a lot of this biological machinery to synthesize things at rates that we can't. And then, yeah, right. You use sugar, spice and everything nice. <laughs> oh yeah. It. <laughs> it's so incredible. So yes, I play God and it's fantastic. <laughs> Actually, you, um, I feel like I read a Twitter post um, from, I think, way back 2018-ish, um, where I think you said something like, um, we're not playing God, we're helping God. And um, uh, biohacking is about uh, access to science um, and stop misrepresenting. Absolutely. Um, so 
is misrepresentation something that you've seen quite a bit of in the biohacking community? And Definitely. Um, I think the term, the, even the term biohacker right. is a bit misconstrued. And even in the Oxford Dictionary, not the actual dictionary, the Oxford Dictionary online states that a biohacker is somebody, is a quote unquote bioterrorist trying to harm people. And huh. that is the standard definition of if you Google the term biohacker and it's caused a panic and a frenzy um, and also distrust from both academia and corporate to look down on citizen scientists. And at the end of the day, we're all scientists trying to solve the same problems. Yeah, that's super interesting. And um, Guy, I'll, I'll let you get back to that. I just, um, when I was looking up the definition of like biohackers, right? And I feel like there's a distinction now, a new definition of a bioterrorist, which I didn't even consider. But um, the distinction between researchers that do independent research versus people that do independent research that is genetic engineering oriented versus sort of this like, newer sort of vogue term of a biohacker, um, people that are like optimizing their bodies, right? Um, what do you, are you more affiliated with like a certain one of those niches or is it mostly like genetic engineer? Yeah. And I could totally break it down for you because yeah. it's not really defined. Yeah. What I can say is that biohacker is the umbrella and underneath the umbrella are different definitions of what a biohacker is. Uh, different sectors such as genetic engineering, for one. Um, there's also the Hollywoodized version of if I drink a cup of coffee and I'm going to poop and I'm going to li live longer. Like that's a Hollywood version yeah. of biohacking, like hacking your body. Uh, there's also transhumanists. There's also grinders that want to modify their body to become more cyborg-like, um, which also kind of bleeds into transhumanism and, mm -hmm. and genetics, genetic engineering. So there isn't, and there's obviously like the concept of singularity in a biohacker. So there's lots of things that describe what a biohacker is. I do put myself in the bucket of I'm a genetic engineer biohacker working on genetics. Got it. Um, yeah, guy, I don't want to disrupt too much. No, that's a really, that's a good, it's, it's good to kind of get those definitions out. It's very easy to be lost in the semantics of things and let other people define things for you. Right. And the reality is, is it's like, well, semantically, that's the definition that you prescribe to. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the other things is, have you had any, I mean, you had mentioned your father, but I guess in the current state, are there any scientific role models that you look up to in the current, like whether it's academic or in the biohacker space? Are there Not necessarily scientists, but I look up to a lot of people that are actually making things. Mm. And there's a huge distinction between people that make things and people that dream things. And the very rare intersection of people that dream things that actually make things, which might be the startup sector that mm -hmm. I'm very passionately in right now. So that's how I would answer that. Did you, um, this, this is a fun one. Did you have anything, I think with a lot of people, they have this really hyper focus on like their topics, but growing up or even now, is there anything that kind of accentuates your perspective on science that is not, um, like 
that improved your perspective? For some people, it was like sports or music or art, like something. Something that enhanced my. Your ability to like to conduct science or to work with these communities that is tangential to it. That's a really good curveball question. Hmm. I don't really know. I, f I feel <laughs> like um, you've spoken a lot about makers versus dreamers and entrepreneurship and sort of the role of like creating what you're seeing and believing. I feel like that is somewhat unique from a traditional sort of researcher perspective in an academic institution potentially. Is that right? Yeah, I do not have a traditional pedagogy. Yeah. My background is very non-traditional. Mm. I am not a traditional academic. Uh, I'm not a traditional industrial person. I really come from the grassroots movement of trying to enable and educate about genetic engineering and science to a larger population and audience and to teach scientific literacy to people because right now more than ever, it's super needed. And after emerging out of COVID, we really see how people are not educated about science in general. And it's really sad. So yeah. I've really taken up, taken upon myself to become more of a leader in the space uh, to convey and to just scientifically sci like biosplain things. You know, mm. we, we really need that right now. What do you think is, um, what do you think is withholding people from, um, interacting more with it as a as a as a citizen as a like not as a layman or a non-traditional scientist scientists or science is really behind closed doors and mm. paywalls mm. with papers <laughs> yeah. right it's become so inaccessible and it really comes from the top down of academia right mm. sorry academics not sorry i think that we have gone through the system so much and we we have compartmentalized ourselves to think in such a way where we've lost the ability to be curious. And I think academia, okay, maybe not academia per se, but maybe we've lost that ability to conduct good science. Mm. Yeah. So truly, it really comes from the accessibility of science. And we need to solve for that. Yeah, I, I think this is a good, um, like, uh, a point that I wanted to clarify. And you had brought some color into what you think science involves. But what is your definition of a scientist? That's a great question. I think a scientist is really born out of curiosities. Uh, amateur, professional, a scientist is one that ponders about the what ifs. But a real scientist is the one that does. And mm. this can be done with research, sharing, and collaborating. Okay. So, and just for some background on Esther, um, she, you run a uh, biohacking conference yearly. Are you still putting those up? I, so Biohack the Planet, I've, I've run for four years, for awesome years. Uh, I've given the reins um, back to Josiah. Nice. Um, but it's, they, they still produce workshops. Um, yeah, it's, it's still a really thriving community, but I've diverted my time 
elsewhere to build new things. Nice. Um, So can you tell me a little bit more about like what the community is like and what kinds of characters you'll see? And I think you're also pretty heavily involved, if not running a lab co-working space. Is that right as well? Yeah, uh, I do all those things, but it really came from the Odin. Josiah gave me a really great opportunity to run a Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And I've learned so much. And shout out to everybody that's in that community because it's incredibly diverse, very colorful, and I, I see the future of scientific collaboration truly through this group because people would propose really crazy ideas or even just like the basic concepts of, hey, how do you find this particular piece of information? How do you do this experiment? Has anyone even conducted this experiment? And people would give immediate feedback and peer review. Mm. And it's a little, and it really resonated with me when you described what SciFind is because we were essentially doing that in the form of forums and and in Facebook groups. So having immediate feedback of protocols Mm -hmm. is incredibly important for scientific literacy and learning how to move forward. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is for anyone who's worked in a lab, like a lot of our, a, a lot of expertise and the ability to execute things really comes from like, it's kind of like apprenticeship and like, how are other people helping you? It's, it's so much expertise that like you need these community oriented ways of doing it. And I think there's a lot of perspectives on like lone wolf science and stuff like that, but that's, it's very hard for me to imagine because there's so many little details. Right. And it's not even just the lone wolf. Like we have, actual, we have academic scientists, we have bioethicists, we have people working in startups or large corporations. Everybody come to the table, you know, they, they check their egos at the door and they just blatantly ask the important questions. Mm -hmm. And it's so refreshing because now we've cultivated a community that's open and sharing material and material sharing feedback collaboration. And this is the world that I want to grow Mm -hmm. in terms of scientific community in the future. So as you started running this Facebook group, and this is a little bit off a little bit of a tangent, but um, you mentioned your your father was involved in like the early dot com boom in Silicon Valley, I imagine. Um, Yes. Were you so did he and his experience shape the way that you thought about community building in this sector? Definitely did. I saw, I kind of put it in a couple of buckets, right? I saw his entrepreneurship, which was building something out of nothing. And uh, I saw the way that he treated his employees. And it was pretty awesome. I mean, he raised so much money and he onboarded 100 people within a month at his company. And it was one of those like unicorn companies in Silicon Valley but uh, it unfortunately crashed and burned really hard uh, because VCs decided to kick him out. Um, but he treated people with respect and gave them brand new laptops, uh, you know, <laughs> gave them all lunch, all hundred employees lunch every single day. And the way he treated them, there was a lot of respect f- coming from his employees. And I really wanted to emulate that. Mm. So I had this really incredible opportunity emerging, you know, post-COVID of 
building virtual communities. And it really resonated with me because a lot of people were really craving that interaction without being there in person. And we see the scope of hybridizing meetups now. Mm. And now I can reach way more people, get many more people involved with the same you know, mindset. Um, and it's really opened a lot of doors to kind of usher in this new scientific community concept. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So you would say... COVID was a, a real sort of turning point in imagining sort of the ways that these communities could be brought online. Right. Because all, all the things that I was thinking about before now has been tested in a virtual community and it's worked out really well. Um, so what are some of the, you mentioned that the community consists of entrepreneurs, um, academics, bioethicists, et cetera. And it seems like it's a very sort of diverse community, um, at least from the industries that they're coming from. Um, is there a common goal or is there sort of a typical trajectory of what happens with projects that come out of independent research that you see? Um, the goal here is to democratize science. And there are, there are many goals inside of democratizing science. <clears throat> when people come into the community, everyone has a different perspective on how the community or everyone has a different perspective of success. And mm -hmm. also when they come in, they're coming at it from all angles, right? Some people are very new to the community. They might have seen a documentary once and they were like, oh, very curious about what goes on behind these pseudo closed doors. Mm -hmm. Or you have the very seasoned veteran of somebody trying to do a startup company and they're just trying to look for people to hire or, you know, emerging pieces of technologies inside of these maker spaces. So I think the community is also very diverse in that. Mm. And I don't think that everyone has the same outcome as another person. However, we do focus on trying to democratize science to make it more accessible. Okay. So are mm. the specific research projects you typically see, like there's a lot of collaboration? Are they, I mean, Guy mentioned the lone wolf scientists. Is that a phenomenon that you see? Or is it pretty collaborative in nature? And then like, I don't know, maybe this is a ridiculous question, but what happens to the IP or what happens to the outcomes of the research afterwards? Do people try to commercialize and... Yeah, it's kind of all over the place. Like I said, mm -hmm. it, everybody has a different motivation, whether that they build something with the community and, you know, they they ultimately sell it, which isn't super cool, but I guess you can do it, you know, <laughs> might yeah. as well commercialize, you know, something that um, and, and put it out there in the world, which is important. Uh, we don't want ideas to go die. Um, but at the same time, but we mostly mm. encourage more open source science. Okay. So anything that's open source, we always try and push out. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think like there's a lot of really fun <clears throat> hardware kind of tricks cuz like the especially um suppliers of it, like you can buy a spectrophotometer for like 4 grand or you can just buy the components for 40 bucks and like assemble it and they're not like 
It's not such advanced technology, let's say. There's so many silly things that biohackers have invented in turn because all the components of lab equipment is things that shake or heat things. And I've <laughs> Oh yeah, the autoclave like um the pressure cook, the Instapot autoclave. Every biohacker as a pressure cooker. <laughs> yeah. You know, it that's works awesome. really well and it's super cheap and you don't need a full autoclave and that's what's so funny to me. I find it very humorous when academics come to me and they say, oh, that's so hard doing science. How do you build a lab in your home? You, you have to have state-of-the-art lab equipment and everything needs to be just like tip-top sterile. I'm like, well, you don't really need, you, you don't need to prioritize sterility if you're not going to put it inside of a human body or like mm-hmm. an animal, you know, like whatever like fuck sterility um you know and like lab equipment you'd be surprised how many things i get i buy off of ebay Mm -hmm. or you know contract some like biohacker to make me a tiny pcr machine that holds like three samples you know there's the the community is so creative in that way and it's truly like diy science and we even make our own reagents and share them with each other Oh, you make your own tack. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I guess with sterility and things like that, it really depends on you know what like what you're working on, right? If you're working with like microbiological applications, like you'll see if it's contaminated. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it's up to you to keep things near the flame and do things like that. So, like you know, I, the only time it gets annoying is if I guess you're sequencing stuff. And then like you don't want the contaminant or else you're spending a lot of money to sequence something that you don't want. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's like, true. Uh, but um, it, I think it's less for the like, the, dep- it depends on the project, right? Right. And, and, and it made me really question why we were using pieces of lab equipment mm-hmm. or why we were even, yeah, why, why, why did we even do this experiment by this one paper, right? Like, I'm not saying that there that we created shortcuts for ourselves, but we really hacked kind of like the system to basically drive things more cheaper and more cost effective because running a lab out of your own pocket can get really oh, expensive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But if you're scrappy enough, if you're savvy enough, if you material share with each other in an open source manner, you can totally get a, a project done. Yeah, like plasmids, people's reagents, like some labs make their own, right? Like, let's say they really use like liters and liters of tack polymer. I don't know if you would need that, but right. like, <laughs> but whatever, like they will create a way to do it because they don't even have the budget to, you know, buy, keep buying it. Like, right. And we even, we even do group buys, you know, like, mm-hmm. fl- like flongles at uh, Oxford Nanopore, we'll just bulk buy them and then disseminate them to whoever wants to do sequencing in their mm-hmm. home. Wait, sorry. What's a flongle? A flongle. Yeah. It's is... a great word. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's really awesome being a scientist. Cause you could just like make up words. A flongle is um, a library prep ch- chip that goes inside the Oxford Danapore to basically do sequencing um, at your computer. Oh, it literally cool. takes a USB port and you can sequence something in your home. Dude, flongle, that's the coolest word ever. <laughs> yeah. I've used the nanopore thing long ago. Uh, um, a couple years ago. So. Yeah. 
It's quite a fun. It's 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 kind of nifty to just have a little sequencer there. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's pretty sweet next to you. So, I think from here, I want to spend some time talking about um, what the specific pain points and challenges of independent researchers um, that they frequently face. Um, I have to say that even though you're seeing biohackers in the context of like you know, the U.S. um, outside of institutions, it calls to mind for me um, a lot of my family's experiences being scientists in Colombia, South America, where there's no access to the equipment and to the reagents and um, the ingenuity of people that I know that continue to pursue scientific research, but really independently just because they're locked out of like the funding institutions or simply because shipping doesn't take place, (laughs) you know, Um, but it seems to me that there's quite a few parallels as well, but I'm interested in hearing what you see the greatest um, pain points are. Is it communication or is it like resource oriented? Um, what, yeah, what, what are people feeling? That is a hard question to answer in the time allotted because there's, there's a lot of things that we need to work on. Um, I, think, I think you hit a lot of the points of science communication, mm. right? Um, just traditionally scientists have a hard time speaking to each other mm-hmm. or conveying what they did in experiment. We see the absolute car wreck of papers being published and no one can replicate them, let alone mm-hmm. some people can't even get a hold of that scientific research to, to even ask questions. So I think there's a really big barrier in science communication that we're not teaching to scientists. Mm-hmm. But if we could start at the level of teaching that to citizen scientists or biohackers, I think we could set, you know, some really awesome standards. So, for example, a lot of us show our work through social media. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. One of my really close friends, Sebastian, has his entire lab protocols and everything that he's doing on across Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and it's so refreshing to see and to follow along everything that he's doing and what he's doing it for. It's almost like the the new scientist, um, but it's not an influencer. It's like a, a social media leader. I mean, yeah, ultimately, yeah. he is an influencer, right? Guess, he's teaching yeah. he's teaching scientific literacy and also just yeah, showing people what science can do. Is he actively going and pursuing publishing after he mm. conducts this? Re- or is it just everything is taking place on these new mediums and he's like... Yeah, I think he has some stuff on BioArchive and perchance. I can't speak for it. But. Can't speak for him. <laughs> yeah. He's just one of those gems in our community that is just curious about the world. And he yeah. wants to share his scientific findings. And it goes back to what is a scientist mm-hmm. without you know, researching, experimenting, and sharing. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the most exciting projects that you've seen come out of the space? Ooh, projects in the space? Um, it would certainly be Open Insulin. So they've been around for a while, mm-hmm. and they started in Oakland, California, from a f- founder named uh, Anthony. And uh, he has he has diabetes, and he really saw the inequalities uh, of healthcare and how healthcare has really failed Americans to provide 
access to a drug that is needed. Um, and so he created this project called the Open Insulin Project that came out of Counterculture Labs and it spread to more of a global movement now. So several countries, actually, countries and parts of the world work on this particular project to engineer yeast to produce insulin. And so I've been championing that project for a very long time. And they also got a seven-page spread on Time magazine showing how biohackers are trying to, you know, crack the code of insulin and also open, fully open sourcing the blueprints on how to make your own insulin. So it's not just, a, you know, the, the message here isn't just like, here are the blueprints, go make your own insulin in your backyard. It's more about the social implications of that the American system is truly broken to where people now have to like try and synthesize insulin in their backyards, <laughs> which, you know, um, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But yeah, I, you know, that's that's one project that I absolutely love. There are, there are so many more projects uh, kind of emerging. Um, I can't really name them all, but yeah, that's that's one that I really absolutely love. Yeah, I think with the insulin, the more the even more sad thing historically is that the Canadian scientist who discovered it and patented it opened the patent to begin with. <laughs> so it's like it's it's kind of sick that yeah. then it gets like repurposed into this commercial application when even the the original intent of the scientist was its openness. Right. And you know, <laughs> when when it become, when it becomes open, it allows smaller pharmaceuticals to to take that and then produce it generically which is ultimately right. what they mm -hmm. what they want mm -hmm. right right um what i guess this kind of takes us to the next thing what technologies do you think are emerging in the space that allow us to make this kind of shift into independent scientists like right in the tech world before you know you had IBM and computers were like in the same vein as here really big, clunky, expensive things. And now we see this shift. What are some things you see shifting? I'm so glad that you bring up IBM because uh, I, I tell this story in terms of, in terms of emerging innovation, because we see this in the computer revolution. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying computers are equivalent to mm -hmm. biology. Yeah, of course. Not at all. They're very different beasts. However, when it comes to emerging technologies, all the patterns are all, almost the same. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll give this analogy here where, so the, the computers, personal computers were built. And then the next phase of innovation, you know, life cycle, the life cycle of innovation is really 10 years for it to actually mature. So within 10 years, personal computers were built. The second revolution was the internet. And the infrastructure was fully set up for computers, for us to connect to each other. And then after 10 years, then the apps came, like Facebook, Apple, Google. All of these apps came for us to use. And so that th we've had this huge era of innovation and technology just from the computer revolution. Now, how do I relate it with synthetic biology? Mm -hmm. Well, in synthetic biology... We discovered this uh, mechanism to do engineering more rapidly and more accurately through CRISPR engineering. And so we discovered that. And that's very analogous to the personal computer. Mm -hmm. 
And so the second part would be, and the second revolution would be um, developing tools and application or tools, tools and platform technology, bioinformatics, really parsing through that material. And then the third bucket would be the really sexy, sexy, sexy <laughs> applications of food technology, mm-hmm. clothing, um, alternative fuels, you know, like there's so many cool applications. Now, I also want to address the current status of the bioeconomy because we really accelerated from discovering CRISPR technology all the way to the apps, but we fully miss this entire renaissance of developing tools, software, you know, hardware, standardization, platform technology, bioinformatics, because we were so focused on creating these like really sexy apps so that we can sell to mm-hmm. VCs and we could scale our products. But we, we see very often that, you know, if you're going to build an awesome product, you have to build the technology that goes along with it. And everybody is scrambling to build it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So they're building their own tools. They're building their own standardization. And that's why overall the industry is kind of a mess mm-hmm. because we forgot to build the tools to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and if you ask a grad student right now that's you know coming out from university and you ask them, what do you want to build? They're most likely going to answer with, oh, I'm going to build like a mushroom chair or <laughs> an alternative <laughs> meat that is made out of like hamsters, <laughs> you know, and and they think that is sexy and scalable. And sure, it's sexy and scalable. But like we should also go back to the drawing board and focus on building standardization for our industry. And this goes back, I think, to your original message, which was um, what kinds of projects you guys like to encourage and what you get. It's open source tooling. Is that is that right? Like, yes. So how do you how do you distinguish open source in um, synthetic biology versus like encoding? Right. There's a you have a code base that's open source and people are contributing. And um, is same it, thing. It's the same thing. Same thing. Sick. It's fucking sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think with we see the same thing in tech a lot where it's like these open source kind of things like, right, you know, we have um, what is it like you have Node, React, like all these different languages and frameworks in it that are open sourced and that builds that allows all these developers to build all these big applications of those things. Right. And that kind of stuff is is hodgepodge in science. And I think that goes back to the way that, right, things are so siloed. It's like every everything is reinvented in each occurrence of it happening. Like Absolutely. In, in, in every lab, they're not, if you don't communicate, but you have to resolve it, you're just gonna make up your own solution. Everyone's just making up their own solutions over and over and <laughs> And over. that's what we're facing right now is people are trying to make up their own solutions. For example, for the case of limbs, right? Oh, uh, laboratory. No, no. I'm scared. I hate that word is like very triggering. Laboratory inventory management. I'm like... Management yeah. systems. No. Limb, limb ASMR. Limbs ASMR. No. Yeah. I was assigned that like at my previous company. How like, painful was doing a limb, how, was creating a limb system for your company? I've never done that. Excel. 
Excel sheet. It's basically an ex spoiler alert. It's an Excel sheet. <laughs> so there's lots of, you know, software companies that are trying to race to create the ultimate limbs experience for people. And then at the end of the day, it's it's an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> then the, then the, the, the funny thing is uh, like the problem with the limb system, right? Like someone has to update it. It's like you have to manually go. But am I going to go into the minus 80 and risk frostbite to like check that every two visits? Like, <laughs> I, my, like my, my perspective is like I get my enzyme out, I use it, and then I need to stick it right back into that frosty like. I can't explain it stuff because if you haven't seen what I'm, I'm not talking doing about, that. <laughs> I'm not you don't want to do that. Yeah, no, no one wants to do that. <laughs> no one like, wants to do that. In and out as fast as possible. Um, yeah, I had my own protocol. I'd have to like stick my fingers in my armpits <laughs> to like warm them up and then prepare myself with a parka to go into my minus 80 freezer yeah. and then try and like read the labels that were <laughs> shittily drawn on. Over. Yeah, that no one can read. So, Already, I mean, just even like the software aspect of it, people want to plug and play like, oh, we've created an automatic system for your limbs. And you're just like, this is so useless. <laughs> so I would encourage people to build technology that is actually useful and get feedback from an actual scientist. <laughs> because, you know, there's a lot of people that are coming from different industries and I highly encourage that. I want software engineers, mm -hmm. I want electrical engineers, I want ev I want everybody to come and participate building out, you know, the 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 platform tools for yeah. for scientists right to use. Like scientists are allergic to coding. They you know, I it's very rare I find a scientist that also knows how to code. Huh. Which is super bizarre because you can you could po probably automate a lot of things. I th yeah, I think I, like, at least from my experience, like you're just spending so much time in the proverbial kitchen that you're like, like, I'm just, you know, you're already inundating your brain with all these different enzymes and chemicals and protocols and like how everything interacts that then I'm like, oh, but now I have to run, create an entire new language to analyze all my data. Exactly. Um, so it's a, it's a bit much, um, but that's what makes it exciting. I think yeah. is that we, we have this opportunity uh, to do everything, but you know, we're not, we're very limited to time mm -hmm. and we're very task oriented people. So it would be nice to develop software to be able to do a full stack automation of genetic engineering and, mm -hmm. you know, have have, you know, automated robots to basically uh, do the work for you while you sit at the top and just like biocode your way through and 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 bring something like really good to the table. Yeah. I, I really love the way that you broke down um, the phases of maturity and adoption for gene editing. Um, and I love that you say that the sexy applications, you know, are, are the ones that typically get people's initial interest and I think like call the most attention to them. Right. And I think that's something that's distinct from this sort of technological movement from software engineering, where I think in the beginning with the software engineering community, you didn't have an idea of what it was going to become. Um, you didn't know what the applications were going to do necessarily or look mm -hmm. like. You didn't have this idea of what it was supposed to look mm -hmm. like. And I think in this demographic, right, you're almost like fighting against this image of or maybe you're not fighting against it, but what immediately comes to mind with biohacking is like 
um, I don't know, genetically modifying like uh, some organism to have like human parts onto it or some like weird yeah. mutants or something, right? Like, I don't know. It's we see the end goal, but then the tooling. So, right, like in tech, if you go back to the 90s, people are like, yeah, I can like, like, like the, 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 imagination is not quite there because you have to build these like right it, code it lives on a tablet in your house and you're like what, what even is that yeah but this is like oh look it's my new designer pet like yeah whatever. yeah why not jackalope <laughs> jackalope <laughs> um, hybridized animals hey yeah. i i get a slew of people that's like i want to make pokemon and i'm like that sounds fucking sick but also like ethically <laughs> not okay but you know like tell me how you're gonna do it you know i really want to know the basis of it have you thought about this um so i i love brainstorming with just people that are really out there and it all comes down to how diverse the crew is you know they a lot of them love sci-fi and i you know i i love sci-fi as well so when we extract like oh i really want to make like yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really want to make a Pikachu, and you're just like, oh, what would you, what would you take as like your model organism to make a Pikachu? <laughs> like an electric eel mixed with a a rat or something. I guess that's that's the living <laughs> organisms right now that would make a Pikachu. A chinchilla. Yeah, a chinchilla mixed with a more uh, mm. an electric eel. Actually, there's a there's a little rodent <laughs> called a Pika Pika. And oh. it literally lives in California oh, yeah, in, yeah. inside of the desert. So that's what <laughs> Pikachu was emulated uh, from. But like, yeah, if we could cute. just give it some electrical properties, like that would be pretty sweet. And then we'll solve our energy crisis too. Exactly. <laughs> could you imagine? Yeah, these giant farms of Pikachu like, yes. producing all our energy. What's climate change? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pikachu. <laughs> oh God. I think oh, yeah, like that's a, another ethical the, problem. No, there's a Pokemon spent. movie with that where like they did. the Mewtwo. No way. Yeah. yeah. Like they're like enslaving all these Pokemon. It's like one of the first movies. I mean, Mewtwo Strikes Back 2000. Oh, yeah. Like, literally. <laughs> they're like enslaving Pokemon. <laughs> like... Um, okay. Um, I think going on that line, um, obviously unlike software engineering, um, there's, you know, specific risks associated with genetic engineering, just a quick take, um, you know, how do you think about the responsibility of researchers in the space or in terms of biosecurity? What's, what's your kind of take on that? That's also a really loaded question. And honestly, I don't have a good answer for it. And if anybody else tells you that they have a good answer for that, that's bullshit mm -hmm. because there is great risk and risk can be taken very negatively, but it also could be very beneficial and kind of the outcomes of genetic engineering technologies can be incredible and really life-changing, but also pose a risk when we have really bad actors in the community. Yeah. So, I mean, after supporting large communities working on independent projects in their homes and garages, I can really attest that people are engineering with genes to really benefit humankind. Uh, that's a pretty hard, like, you know, big accusation to make. But, you know, in the context of biosecurity, it's a really large challenge to govern the ungovernable, mm -hmm. right? It's not like I own this community. The community owns itself. Mm-hmm. And so as a community, we should be developing more biosecurity and bioethics so that we have a framework to check each other before we wreck each other. And, you know, it really <laughs> truly takes a village to assess each project because it's really difficult for one person to, you know, sit on the board and say mm -hmm. and truly understand the cost risk benefits 
of each particular project. And I've seen I've seen very uninformed policymakers make decisions for our entire industry without seeing all the benefits. So I believe as we as scientists really must lobby, educate and even participate in shaping our future because we as scientists also have a moral obligation to inform the public facts. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it should be started with collaborating with policymakers or even becoming one. Yeah, I think just to kind of go on that same idea, we definitely see the same thing happening with like tech policy. If you think about the origin of social media, none of us were thinking that you would have Cambridge, Cambridge Analytics. Yeah, mm-hmm. that like Analytics. you would have this entire propaganda machine of whatever, you know, et yeah. cetera. Um, and that's what it would be used for. And it creates these, you know, um, echo chambers, et cetera. Um, that is not really something that we could have predicted necessarily. And at the same time, we have policymakers who are asking in the hearings are like, what is what is what is the Internet? What is Google? Like, right. you know what I mean? It's uh, uh, that is it's it, it's insane that 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 then the, the, these people make these policies. Exactly. Um, have you seen our California Scientific and Technology Board? No, no, no one has. Well, I did. I did some I did some preliminary research and um, most of them don't have a degree in science. They took one biology class that one time and didn't finish. So these are the people that we elected Mm -hmm. as people on our board of science and technology to drive California innovation. That is speaking volumes. So I take a page from Michael Eisen. Uh, mm. He he really encouraged the population to go after positions, you know, in our in our local government. Just start really small, right? And mm-hmm. start vocalizing what's important and how we should really build this community and how we can usher in this new, you know, renaissance of synthetic biology. Yeah. I mean, that being said, we did see some moves from the federal government recently, yes. which mm-hmm. I'm like, who, who is the angel who pushed that both with the biomanufacturing bill, but also with the um, publishing, the um, open access yes. mandate. Um, yeah, that was really cool. That is very cool. And I'm very excited for it. And the people that were elected into that position, I have tons of faith. And it's interesting because it's like a reciprocal problem, right? It's not just that there aren't enough scientists in government, and it's also that uh, not enough of the public is embedded in the community or understands how to think about scientific research or where to look for research, how to stay informed. Um, It seems to me like we, from sort of the perspective of building our, our startup, we often get comments from both researchers that like, right, they don't have enough intercommunication within the community, but also people, laymen that we talk to are like, oh, sick, I can come and join the platform to stay up to date on like what researchers are talking about. That Mm. would be awesome. Um, And I guess I'm interested in why you think it's important or do you think if independent research can kind of be this sort of um, fertile ground for this intercommunication between these two bodies, right? Like the public and sort of the scientist. Right. And that's why I wanted to give access to people, right? Because 
policy, you know, policymakers obviously make the laws. Mm -hmm. And imagine if they imposed, you know, like no genetic engineering to be conducted outside of sanctioned, uh, mm -hmm. you know, facilities. That would be devastating, right? To ha to ha house and shelf really awesome technology behind closed doors. So I encourage, you know, I encourage biohackers. I encourage people to get in the mindset of contributing to open source science because it gives them an opportunity to learn on the ground what's happening, you know, mm -hmm. how they can contribute their small piece of expertise. You don't need to be in tech. You could be, you know, like a really awesome marketer and storytell, mm -hmm. you know, and there's, there's lots of things people can do to contribute to the greater good of the bioeconomy. Um, but also at the same time, just teach people how to do science again, you know, encourage people to go outside and touch grass, <laughs> <laughs> like be curious. That goes back to the thesis of what is a scientist? Mm -hmm. It's to be curious and do something about it. Mm -hmm. So it's not even just, oh, I'm going to come into this community and be a fly on the wall and just soak up and understand what's going on. Well, yeah, sure. You could soak up everything, but how, what good is it if you're not expressing your feelings about um, what this technology is or even showing people what this can do or teaching people what, you know, what, what the future might look like? Like, I think that's also a disservice if you just keep it to yourself. And for listeners or people that are, um, new to independent research or start want to start becoming more involved, what kind of practical advice do you have? Where should they start? Yes. So <clears throat> I would do, learn, and learn by doing. So all engineers have this idea of uh, design, test, and build. Build, test, design. Build, test, design. <laughs> and you know, you can do the same exact things by doing and learning and learn by doing. And there's so many resources out there that's free and accessible, open source. Join a community. Join a community bio lab in your city, in your nearest city. You know, reach out to me. I can definitely connect you with somebody of your interest and get started on that. Watch a documentary. Anything that piques your curiosity, I would go the extra mile just to learn a little bit more by talking to people or just, just getting more information about it. Because if you do it, or if you learn it, you can also do it. And you can learn by doing. There's a great uh, thing from Confucius that says that. He's like, I hear, I forget, I see, I remember, I do, I understand. Mm. So, am I Confucius? The Chinese I... figured that out thousands of years ago. <laughs> oh, okay, well, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> um, no, I love that. Um, can you tell me a little bit more? Again, going a little bit off track, but uh, can you tell me a little bit more about um, the emergence of community biolabs? And that seems to be an increasing trend I've seen over the past five years. But you're closer to the space. How? How have you seen sort of community biolabs come together? Right. And I really observed this trend when 
it was during COVID times. Okay. There was a huge influx of people going to commu- communities. And honestly, that I think that's why Facebook really survived because of Facebook groups. <laughs> but there was a lot of people that opened up discords and Slack channels and, you know, even launched so launched podcasts and um, had journal clubs like the community was quite thriving and really craving this, you know, attention for for scientific, you know, for scientific literacy and and to share it with amongst people. So a lot of community um, communities have emerged post COVID or even during COVID. And it's very exciting to see. I think um, I think it's really difficult to maintain a community, Mm. right? Because sure, we had, we opened our doors, we had this influx of people, but how do we retain these people? How do we add value to a community member? Do people even know each other, right? Like there's so many nuances to community building and it's, it's really difficult. Um, And I don't think, one person should burden themselves to build a full stack community of like awesome people. Right. I think the community really determines how things are going to go, but it really requires a really robust framework um, to be able to continue the conversations. Mm. So for example, I used to run conferences and typically a conference, you go to the conference, say hi to your friends And then at the end, you go in a very sad, depressive state because (laughs) you really miss that person and you had really great conversations and you just can't wait to see them next year. Mm. Mm. And I feel that's so hard. And so maybe that's why I I love going to conferences. Um, But, you know, when in a sustained community online, you can continue those conversations. Mm. You can have that very candid of, conversation of like hey this plasma didn't work like you know like what did you do instead and and just and just carry that and that's a form of collaboration that i truly love like for example at biohack the planet uh one year in las vegas we threw it for 300 people And what really warmed my heart was people started sharing plasmids, like tubes of DNA with each other. And they were like, hey, check out this plasmid I created. Like, can you verify that this plasmid is this? Like, and can you just like share the results? I'd love for you to like, you know, check my work. And I was like, this is incredible. But like, I can't believe you got it through TSA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the camaraderie is great. I think that's what that's what brings people back, commiseration and also sol- solving each other's. And know. yeah, I think you talk about this all the time, guy. Too, it's this idea of like informal communication. Like, what kinds of things are left out because there's no like informal communication channel? Yeah, it's so right? stuffy. If the only way that scientists are basically like able to communicate is through publications which is like the most dense form of literature you can imagine like no one enjoys reading that no and it and the reality is is stuff like language you know it's just a stylistic thing like you do not have to write it like that and the biggest testament to that is like albert einstein yeah he can read a he can write a paper of course he did that but like the reality is is his whole motto is like well you have to be able to reduce things to communicable components and 
that's like what makes it fun. Even complicated science, like you can write a whole thing explaining it, or you can be like, oh, hey, by the way, dude, just, you know, incubate, like put this bacteria in at this temperature and you'll get this protein. I really like, want all protocols to be in Ikea style. <laughs> Ooh, like build your own components kind of thing no like a... no just like pictures oh just pictures just picture no text mm. just pictures you know that's funny because i i saw an application once while we were like trying to think about what to do with our product and this company's called reaxes and they got acquired by some publication i forgot who mm. um but it's a it's a protocol um search engine for reactions like chemical mm. reactions and so you can draw the picture of the chemical that you want to react and then it'll give you like the most similar chemical reaction that they have on file oh very cool but it's just from papers and it like yeah i think that would be sick but that was like <laughs> like oh chemists love to draw pictures of the chemicals that they're going to create makes sense like that that's efficient you know makes total sense yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know we if we can if we can just disrupt the way we think about science and and do science in in ways like an ikea pamphlet or mm -hmm. even just like draw out a picture uh of the thing that i want to be making yeah it's just it's just very mechanistic and formulaic and and very particular style to science. And the cool thing that we've been seeing is like, people kind of want to tell a little bit of a story, even if it's a protocol. Mm -hmm. Like I think, mm -hmm. and the more that you allow people to linguistically do that, the more that they feel happy about that. Like, it's not just like, here's the protocol to do X, Y, Z. It's like, oh, this protocol I made, it took me like this amount of time and it saved my life so many times. Like it, it's a little <laughs> bit of like, like, there's always there's always a story associated with the work that you do and i and why are we why do we just prioritize like oh it's just this heavy concept literature thing that we're going to push out okay that's just a part of the i think the there's like an emerging trend with uh titles of scientific papers mm -hmm. and putting like harry potter and like the whatever, <laughs> you know, like whatever scientific assay I was doing. You know, I, I think those are very whimsical and very funny and very attractive. And it also does a lot of storytelling mm -hmm, for you, mm -hmm. just even in, in the title, right? Because we all read a book by its cover in, sci in science. <laughs> you know, we always just read the, uh, the title and maybe two lines of the abstract to determine if I should actually read this 20 page paper about yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> commitment it's a very large commitment so yeah we just we do need to work on scientific communication i think not even just biohackers but but everybody mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and that's both public facing and internally again right? right like within the community we need more scientists to be able to make each other smarter and yep. help each other troubleshoot and we also need more of the public to understand what the fuck is going on. Cause... Yeah, we need to storytell better. Like, <laughs> damn, you know, sure, we have we have COVID in our pockets, right? We have the mRNA vaccine. We could we could dish that and be like, hey, we solved this thing with like <laughs> science. Um, but we need to do more than that. You know, like the looming big elephant in the room is that GMOs are bad. Right. And where do you think that came from? Some Karen, some Karen in the United States said GMOs are bad. They cause autism. On yeah. what scientific basis is that even remotely true? 
and because it got such bad press. You know, like more than half of the population in the United States think GMOs are bad. Yeah, I mean, it's like the first rule of propaganda in governments and in history is like, it's about who says the first lie first. And the lie that is disseminated mm -hmm. from a neurobiological perspective, we opt for the first piece of information. It's not a, it's almost like we want to believe that human beings are these completely rational actors. And I think with a lot of neuroscience, we've shown that it's far from that. Yeah. <laughs> We're very susceptible to that. And it's important, I guess, to know a little bit of our own cognitive biases. Absolutely. And counteract that. And, and scientists and even yeah. science communicators are just detangling this huge mess that mm. we've created that, that the industry has, has faced. Right. Mm. So I actually look to, uh, you know, alternative protein marketing, right. Because mm. ultimately we want to put this, uh, this product in front of consumers for them to eat it. Mm -hmm. um, but how are we going to convey that, you know, this was made genetic, like through a genetically engineered organism to your plate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look out for marketing yeah, the, buzzwords and, and, and see how we're trying to, trying to navigate through that. We're not lying to the consumer. We want the consumer to be with us through our journey mm -hmm. as we create these things. Yeah, even functionally speaking, um, it's like, right, the protein is the protein. And unless you're engineering it with some other thing that like toxin or whatever, like it, it's the same thing. And your stomach, it will get degraded by the acid into amino acids later. And that's it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's all the same uh in your tummy. Exactly. <laughs> so, it, it does not care. It does not care. <laughs> and I think that's that's also kind of interesting. It's like um, internally, right, we need more people participating and collaborating on sort of the functional aspects of doing research, right? Like more open source tooling to help us read um, sequences, right? Versus like, how does the public relate to an image of an application, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like a Beyond Meat is a great example mm -hmm. um, where I've been getting deep into like cooking shows on YouTube mm -hmm. and I've been seeing more and more ad placements for um, alternative protein sources. And it's like, it's great. Like, I love it. Yeah. Um, but we need more of that. We definitely need more of that. And, and we need to show the sexy application so that we can work backwards yeah. and, and create the tools, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I guess um, for a young researcher or a young scientist, and we kind of discussed, we, we discussed a little bit of this before, but what kind of words of wisdom do you have to somebody who is maybe they're in their undergrad and they're interested in um, synthetic biology, but um, they don't really want to go into academia. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm narrowing the focus a little bit too much, but a young researcher who's interested in becoming more involved. Yeah. Talk. Just talk. Just talk. It's, it's, a, it's really scary, right? It's really scary for somebody to cold call them or cold LinkedIn them and, and say, hey, do you want to talk to me? You'd be so surprised <laughs> how many scientists are kind of like internally like screaming like they want to talk to somebody because they spend <laughs> like eight hours in the lab just like with their headphones on and they just want to talk to somebody. So reach out to anybody, um, you know, go to conferences. I started volunteering at conferences at a really young age to where I exposed myself to 
what is out there. Because if you traditionally think of biotech, you think of, and especially, you know, around the ecosystem, specifically in LA, you think of like health or medical diagnostics or pharmaceuticals, right? And you don't know, you don't know or understand like what else is out there. And I highly encourage young people to go ahead and like talk to people, listen to lectures, uh, go to conferences, um, and, and, and just start reaching out whenever possible, because you can always say no, right? You don't know what you know until you actually do the thing. And then you're like, this sucks. I don't <laughs> want to do this for mm -hmm. my life. I, I made that mistake once. Um, and it cost my parents a lot of private school money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, again, I'm very proud from for what I experienced because, you know, I had to experience failure mm -hmm. and that really grew, you know, grew on me. And like, I, I really emerged from that as a more whole person because now that gave my life meaning and purpose to pursue something that I've always loved mm -hmm. in the back of my Creek, you know, <laughs> catching tiny tadpoles <laughs> all the way to like imagining and growing up with Pokemon being like, Oh my God, an electric mouse. <laughs> um, so that, those are, those are all the components. That's what makes me, me. And, um, what are some red flags, green flags with a good, um, identifying a good company or even a good mentor? Um, what are some things to look for with people to kind of like latch onto? Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up mentors. So I've had many, no, I've only had a few mentors in my life that I've really, latched on to and it's rare it's rare to find that one mentor right you can't just like go up to someone and be like can you be my mentor <laughs> um no you you have to have things that align uh with you and i i don't know how to how to identify those things but you just like feel it in your jellies you know you look at a person you admire this person you want to be this person and they obviously can add value to you hmm. um, and, and, and you're ready to demonstrate what they're going to teach you. So the worst thing that they can say when you approach a, a mentor, a new mentor, is they could say no. Right. Um, but you, if you approach them with, with grace and humility and say, I want to learn all the things that you do, more than likely they'll, they'll mentor you. But, you know, if they, if they don't, it's okay. It was not meant to be. Your jellies were wrong in that sense. Or they could just be like a rabbi. You know, they'll close the door in your face three times. Uh, ah. The third time, they'll they'll be like, okay, let's... Is that a thing with rabbis? Yeah. You're, if you're trying to convert, they'll like... There's an episode of Sex and the City about it. So <laughs> like, if you try to do it, they're going to be like, no, like you don't, you have to show that you like really want it. And yeah. that means they'll say no to you like three times or okay. more. And, yeah. and then... The no is is not really a no from the rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, how how important that is to that this mentor thing, but um, you know, just just go for it. You know, ask all the important questions and red flags in a job. Oof, I'm very community oriented, mm. so I don't ask. I mean, people have different motivations to have a job. Obviously, the one motivation is to get money yeah, <laughs> to be able to feed yourself to and, be able to feed yourself, yourself you know house yourself in san francisco and also <laughs> eat avocado yeah. toast <laughs> you know like mm -hmm. avocado toast is really expensive um 
it's it's super important to get along with your team, whether that be at a small startup or even on a team in a in a large company. I think it's really important to uh, and, it, and it's hard. It's hard to identify that in like a 10 minute interview. Um, but some of the red flags that definitely come across to me is when I speak to uh, the hiring manager and, uh, you know, we get along really well. Um, when you talk to the people that work underneath the hiring manager, it is a huge indication. And sometimes they will not uh, stop themselves from, you know, slipping some really bad habits or bad information your way. And that's a really in good indication mm -hmm. to like get out. They're like, help me. <laughs> <laughs> if they're blinking too much, you know, it's a problem. Um, but yeah, just just be very, you know, vigilant um, about about just like who you end up because at the end of the day, like everything, everybody's expendable. Like when people come to me from academia and they said, oh, Esther, you you have gone through so many startups like that's so risky. And I'm like, OK, um, what makes it less risky than me joining like a pharmaceutical company? Like, yeah, sure. Maybe I'll stay on for another couple of months. But like, would I be ultimately happy? You know, like, mm. is it even stable? Like if I just entered a low level tech position, I'm the first person gone. So that's pretty unstable in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So people have this perception of stability and it doesn't exist. Yeah, I think you brought up a couple themes there too, which is one of them um, being able to have like the agency to pursue your curiosities, right? The things that are motivating you. And then um, the other one for me is um, mission alignment, mm -hmm. right? Like what? why does the company exist or why does the organization exist? Do you align on that basis? And then I think over time, unfortunately, there's no way of knowing for sure if the organization is doing what it says it's doing. Yeah. Um, but that comes. And I think you know pretty quickly, right. uh, you know. So. And it's and it's different for people. Like if you are money motivated, go to a big pharmaceutical company, cash out early, early, you know, like, but if you, if you want to build something, you know, meaningful, uh, you know, everybody is different. For mm. me, I want to build something meaningful that can last a long time way after, I don't know, either the company folds or like, I'm just not interested in it. I want to build something that other people can use, whether that be community, whether that be a product, whether that be building the bioeconomy for the better good. That's what mm. I'm about. Yeah. No. And I think that that's a perfect liaison to um, some people or organizations that you think listeners should really watch out for. Oh, so I'm not even going to plug the big companies, um, but I'm going to I'm going to plug the startups nice. because they need they need a lot of love. Yeah. And I think I think these particular startups are just crazy enough to really, um, uh, you know, create this imbalance. So first of all, I want to plug definitely um, Trilobio. So Trilobio is a, a, um, a accessible and affordable lab robotic automated company. Uh, they, make, um, they, they, they make lab automated robots and they're also trying to build a full stack engineering uh, software, um, yeah, where you can where you can do just like biological assays uh, through the cloud system, and also have integrated with the 
um, the robot. So essentially making scientists' lives a little bit easier. Yeah, making those platforms to make the sexy things. The, the tools. Yes. <laughs> yes. The tools. Yes. The, the shovels. Tooling. I need the shovels. I need the tools. Yeah, yeah. I think tools and shovels are insanely sexy mm -hmm. to build whatever <laughs> I want. <A> Pikachu. <laughs> um, so Trilobio, top of my list. Second on my list is Maverick Bioworks. They are, um, they are a bio-mining company. First of its kind, actually, there's not a lot of like bioremediation companies or like, you know, people that are working on mining are now, like microbes that take like rare earth metals out of. Yes. For example. Or, oh. um, yes, they, like, exactly. Have some enzymes that break it down. And exactly. Or extract it. So yeah, they're exactly. doing a, they're doing lithium extraction, mm -hmm. which is really awesome because we face this. We, we're faced with a problem of a lot of the cars on the street are going to be going electric in the next five mm. years. Like we, we already see that. Um, now our main source of lithium comes from China. Mm -hmm. And so building the bioeconomy and the resilience of America, we obviously want to source a lot of these chemicals in the United States. Turns out that United States have a, has a truckload of lithium inside of its rocks, like in, in, mm. in Texas. Right. And so, we can we've started mining those to to meet the demands of lithium um but we're nowhere near close to you know the the huge vats that china produces mm -hmm. and so the cost of lithium has truly shot up in the past like year because because of lithium cars um lithium battery cars so i think we should look at these sexy applications and solutions to combating climate change as well so those are the two companies. And then uh, the last company that I'm, I've always had a soft spot for is Spira. Mm. They make um, spirulina and their, their product from spirulina is um, blue dye called Electric, Electric Sky. Sky. Have you had that? Yeah. I have like yeah, yeah, yeah. three <laughs> containers of it at home. What do you what do you do with it? I put it in I, beer. You put it in beer. Yeah. The green makes a or it makes a green color, so it's kinda Ooh. It's kinda fun. Okay. I just like add it to my water because I'm just like tired of it being clear. So I just want it to be blue. <laughs> and it gives it this like a little little earthy taste, which I kind of like. At least it's better than the chlorinated LA water taste. So <laughs> like, I don't know if I would recommend this, but he um Elliot could well the founder of Spira could do something like a <laughs> the green ketchup. Do you remember the green, green ketchup? <laughs> yes. Do you remember the green and blue ketchup from was it, when was it through Burger King or did Heinz do that? Heinz did it. Okay. <laughs> Heinz did it for sure because yeah, that's a long Isn't that story. What scarred you from ketchup? Yeah, I actually hate ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well we should do it anyway. <laughs> well, I just remember like piles of green ketchup being everywhere in the schoolyard and there were just like green mush pots. But I feel like that would be effective. I don't know. Yeah. For kids. Oh. Yeah. But they're they're putting, you know, they're they're not just creating just like a food additive. Mm -hmm. They're right. creating uh dyes, you know, for 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 textiles. And I think it'd be really cool to see a full wardrobe made with like biofabrication from like mm -hmm. bacteria. Oh, yeah you know, like products and then like have it dyed with like algae, blue algae, like that would be so cool. And okay. even having like a tasting menu at a restaurant that had like all genetically engineered foods, like 
That is such With a dream. Fashion. Oh, that I would like be sick. The... That'd be super sick. And I've been con- trying to convince, uh, since I'm a yeast engineer, I've been trying to convince a couple of microbreweries mm. up in Northern California to make a fully, like full um, GMO beer with like GMO Ooh. wheat and like engineered hops and engineered yeasts. Actually, there's a, who was it? It was a um, biotech company that had a brewery in-house because the equipment's oh, t- the same. T- Takeda in in berkeley they have a sake factory and the sake factory it's the only sake factory in in the states and it's literally because right takeda makes all these pharmaceuticals takara takeda takeda is a pharmaceutical company so i don't know yeah yeah, yeah. i think it's i think it's no they do they have they have yeah it's a a pharmaceutical company and then because they make so much like ethanol as a byproduct or something Uh they just have this sake brewery and they make money off of it oh my god that's super rad (laughs) yeah you should check it out oh yeah (laughs) yeah it's in berkeley it's in it's um like near fourth street like oh i've heard uh, yeah i've heard of this i've heard of this yeah i actually worked down the street from it i never went there yeah you should do you go to vic's chat yes oh so good it's so good Um, love the cafeteria style i I ate there every day i'm not kidding (laughs) every day that was my and because it has so much variety anyways um, uh so we're getting close to the end um I want to give a kind of fun ending question and then we're going to play a game after. Yeah. Um, the question is, uh, first of all, have you ever played the Sims or like SimCity? I'm very fluent in Simoleon. <laughs> Sim- Simlish. Simlish. Um, so imagine you're given a key and free reign to your own well-funded and reputable institution of sorts. And it's filled with scientists and graduates and every, every type of person that you want and can imagine. Money is no object. And you can hire whoever you want. How do you picture your utopic institution? Paint a picture. Well, first of all, um, the International Space Station, they plan to crash it into the ocean. (laughs) So I would divert funds to purchase the International (laughs) Space Station and crash it in the desert. So once we put it on the desert, then we can simulate, you know, space and things like that or like underwater or undersea exploration. So that would be kind of cool. So we'd have a fully encapsulated lab that we can fully operate. So that would be my lab operations. And then obviously we would have drones like drop ship all of our reagents or even make our reagents in house. Mm. Um, who I would recruit is some is all of the wild scientists in my community that I've come across. Um, you know, they're, and these are not the most brilliant people, right? But they always do something. They always make something just like absolutely wild. So on my team, I would have both dreamers and makers. Schemers. And then, and schemers. <laughs> dreamers because, and schemers. <laughs> because, because those people are the most interesting. Like I don't have an agenda to cure cancer, or extend the life of people or to make alternative proteins. Like I have an agenda to do the weird it's like artistic patronage. Yeah, <laughs> basically, basically. But we, you know, it would be almost a sandbox for people mm-hmm. to just like play in mm-hmm. and, you know, to fucking touch grass and to wonder why things work the way they do. And if we have to continue to do these like, really weird nuances um so ultimately it would just be 
a lot of weird scientists collaborating with each other and making things and showing showing the world what we're making as well. So almost like, I don't know, like community living with like scientists that are fucking weird. In the desert. In the desert. <laughs> I like that. And then like in my basement, the entire <laughs> basement would be just um, huge bioreactors just like brewing and cooking something um, yeah, because... Yeah. I love, I love bioreactors. They can literally make anything from food to clothing to medicine. And so just like engineering microbes to be put inside these huge vats to sustain an entire community. Like I love closed loop like mm. systems. And clearly this is a closed loop system. And I've thought about this through. Mm -hmm. um, we would have bioreactors just like bubbling and creating things as well. So microbes would be doing their work, scientists would be doing their work, and then we'd share our work with the world. That sounds uh, dope. That sounds really dope. <laughs> I like that. I'm a fan. <laughs> Thank um, you. So we're going to finish off with this game. It's called The One Game. The One Game. Um, we ask you a question. You have to answer with one thing. Okay. And you're allowed um, one pass. You can pass on a question, and you can also throw back a question to me or Steph. Sick. Fast, they're rapid fire. What is one thing you hate the most about being a scientist? Reproducibility. <laughs> What's the one thing you fear the most in science? Not curious. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's the one person in history, dead or alive, you want to have dinner with and why? Mm -hmm. Pass. What, what is one personality trait you wish you had? Ah, diligence. <laughs> What's one pet peeve you have? Ugh. What pet peeve? Um, the groan. You have something. One pet peeve? Yeah. What grinds your gears? Oh, B2B sass. <laughs> <laughs> What's the what's your what's the most influential uh, movie you've seen or book you've read? Gattaca. What's, Gattaca, so good. Love that movie. Um, what trait about yourself do you wish everyone else had on Earth? Hmm. I'm gonna export it. Fuckery. Fuckery. <laughs> um, and what minor superpower would you love to have? A minor superpower. <laughs> yes, a minor one. Minor um. Hmm. Flight? Is that minor? That's a pretty. Well, okay, I'll give you flight. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty big one. Um, and then lastly, it's like a quick word association game. Just gonna throw them out. Sure. Very fast. Lavender. Purple. Desert. Space station. <laughs> Octopus. Engineered byproduct. <laughs> Hummus. <laughs> mm. Darkness. My soul. <laughs> Smile. Your soul. <laughs> Leopard. Camouflage. <laughs> Engineer. All of us. Microbe. None of us. <laughs> and human. is what we want to be. <laughs> All right. 
Thank you so much for spending this time with us, Esther. Thank you. It's been a blast. This was a magical experience, and I'm so grateful to be on with you guys. So appreciate it. Thanks for coming. This was awesome. Yes. Thank you very much, and thank you guys for listening. Um, You know, you can follow us on Instagram at the Fancy Lab Code Guild. And Esther, do you have any plugs? What's your Twitter? Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at GMO Futures. On Instagram, GMO Futures. Reach out to me on Facebook, Esta Fiesta 94 You can also reach me. Um, I'm sure they'll provide my email for you. Yes. Uh, yeah. Connect with me on socials. I love talking to people, <laughs> if you didn't know. Uh, love to just chat about what you're doing, where you're going to go, how I can help you, how we can get into community building. All of that. Awesome.